Hi, I'm Dr. Don Welch, licensed marriage and family therapist, and welcome to the My Therapist Says podcast, where I moderate discussions between various relationship experts from medical doctors to licensed mental health professionals to enrich relationship skills and communication. This podcast seeks to bring healing and hope to what matters most in our lives, our relationships. If you would like even more content or to speak with a therapist, you can visit us at www.enrichingrelationships.org. Thank you and enjoy. Good evening to each and every one of you. We welcome you to My Therapist Says here at Skyline Church. I'm Pastor Don Welch, the counseling pastor here, and we're glad that you are here tonight. It's one of our more provocative topics. If you see what the topic is, increasing, excuse me, that, that's next, next, uh, next month, changing negative behaviors in my mate. And I, I was tempted to say that those who are married came without their mates because they know they have no negative behaviors and their mate might, not really, I'm just kidding a little bit, but we're so glad that you're here tonight. Some are going to be coming in and this should be a very, very exciting evening. We have five psychotherapists with us this evening and uh, one a pastor as well uh, who is both marriage and family therapist and a, an ordained minister uh, I guess I am as well, so there's two. We've got two pastors here tonight, but we're so glad to see you. Many of you have been here to this. We've been doing this for a number of years, and many people are using this around the globe, actually. They're archived. You can actually listen to any one of these previous My Therapist Says presentations by just going to our website at skylinechurch.org and move to uh, the mental health, the, the Health Connect area, and you'll see the counseling section that has all of these archived from eating disorders to depression to lots of various anxiety uh, and uh, lots of relationship, of course, uh, work that we have done in the past. So I'm going to have a word of prayer in just a moment. Just want to remind you that you probably have a three by five card in your hand. Would you raise that up just to make sure you have that? Thank you. This is how this happens. Some of you already know this, that this is very interactive. It's like having a psychotherapist in your living room. My son calls me the psycho, but we have a, this is psychotherapist, like being in your living room and you're able to ask questions much like you would in their practice, in their office. So if you would write down your question, it is anonymous. You can actually hold it up now. If you have your question already written or further questions, just hold that up in the air and one of our hosts will come by. They'll pick up your card, bring that to me, and then uh, we will uh, share that question and then begin to respond to it. Later in the evening, we typically have those who would like to interact by uh, microphone. So we will have those available. All you need to do is raise your hand without the 3 by 5 card. Does that sound good? We're going to have a great evening this evening. Let's have a word, and then I'm going to introduce uh, um, our presenter as well as those who are participating on our panel this evening. Thank you again for coming out this evening. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you so much for the privilege of gathering together as we prayed just a few minutes ago, and as this particular event and others in this building, they are prayed for events, events that invite you, the efficacy of God himself, the Holy Spirit, to come and minister to us. It wouldn't matter if there were just two of us or, or one who's seeking God himself, that the power of God is willing and able, capably able, and wants to come and meet us at our deepest needs. I can't think of anything that's more deep needed in our lives than to have healthy relationships and also to have a healthy marriage. And we pray for those here who are in this auditorium and those may be hearing and listening to us uh, through the website, that you would bless them because of 
the power of God who goes throughout the universe and throughout our lives here and ministers. So we bless you tonight. We invite you into these discussions. We pray that as we meet and as we share from expertise and biblical truths that our hearts would be changed. In Jesus' name, I pray this. Amen. I'd like to introduce our presenter tonight, and I'll move over here so that I'm out of the way. And we should have her bio coming up. Uh, there it is, Molly LaCroix, who has been with us uh, before. And you can see her bio and her background. We're so pleased. I'm so pleased that I work, have the privilege, that is, of working with uh, Molly. She will be presenting uh, for about 10 to 12 minutes, I believe, tonight in just a few minutes on the topic to give us our introduction. Gary Cundiff, uh, who is just to my left, um, has also been with us on many occasions, and we're glad to have you back with us, Gary. Yolanda Gorick is with us. Many of you know that uh, all three of these have presented uh, during previous My Therapist Says presentations, and we're glad to have you with us as well, Yolanda. And then Ryan Buckman, who has been with us before um, and is also in pastoral counseling, and appreciate him being with us tonight, and we work alongside with each other at the center. And then Dr. Marcel Fallon from Shadow Mountain. He has been with us on many occasions, and we're so happy to have him with us tonight. So without any further introductions, you've been able to see a little bit of their their backgrounds, their uh, bios, if you will. And that is Molly is going to now uh, present our topic, and then we'll go into discussion and uh, your questions. So if you have your three by five card and you have a question, please raise it in the air at this time so that we can pick that up and bring it to the front here. Feel free to think of that question. Okay, thank you. Molly. Well, good evening, everyone. Changing negative behaviors in my mate. Who wouldn't want to come here about how to do that? <laughs> Tonight's topic is pretty compelling. Don chose a good title. And I think anybody who's being honest with themselves can think of a time when we were pretty focused on thinking about, you know, if he could just change that behavior or if she would just do that differently, if she would only, then that relationship could be so much better. We can be very astute diagnosticians when it comes to our mate. You know, we can diagnose all their problems, if you ask us. <laughs> and, um, you know, if you want to know what the issues are, just ask me. I'll tell you. I know. We have very keen vision for spotting our mate's opportunities for improvement. Next slide, please. I don't know if you can read it on your handout, but this cartoon is my favorite so far of, my, uh, of the marriage and family therapy cartoons I've come across. And it says, I took a hard look at my role in this and decided it would be easier for me if you change. <laughs> so I'm glad you're laughing because humor is really helpful in relationships and it's particularly helpful when we get focused on our mate's shortcomings as we see them. Now, of course, Jesus knows about our tendency to focus on the other person, and he actually used some pretty harsh language to warn us about it. Luke, next slide, please. Luke 6, 41 and 42 says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust? The speck of sawdust is pretty hard to see. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say, friend, let me take the speck out of your eye? I'm really eager to do that. I'd love to help you. When you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye, mm -hmm. 
Jesus says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. It's pretty clear from this parable that while it's okay to help someone else with the speck in their eye, our first focus needs to be the plank in our own eye. We all know that's much easier said than done because the speck that we are so busy focusing on can get us pretty reactive. That reactivity or distress or anxiety or anger or whatever you think of when you get charged up about that particular thing or list of things that you um, have diagnosed in your mate, um, that reactivity can have some pretty negative consequences for ourselves as individuals and for our relationships. First, we can get really discouraged and even hopeless about the relationship if we feel things can't improve without the other person changing, because we know that we really don't have a lot of control over whether they choose to change. And the more distressed we are about our partner's behavior, the less likely we are to see our own part in the process, or even to realize maybe we have a part in the process. <laughs> When we're stuck in a position of he or she needs to change in order for this relationship to improve, and we don't see our mate getting interested in changing, we can get pretty distressed. And distressed, or, or what I like to call emotional reactivity, it's a nice general term for whatever that emotion might be, it can take a variety of forms. Next slide, please. I hope I didn't forget. Good, I'm on track. The first is physical. Now, who can think of a physical sign of emotional distress? Just call it out, and I'll repeat it for the tape. A physical manifestation that you feel when you're anxious. Someone said ulcer, so stomach upset, absolutely. You might notice a tight stomach or an acid stomach. What else do you notice? Headache, I hear headache. Rapid heartbeat. So you're kind of getting the image. You can think of it as head and neck, <laughs> chest and stomach. <laughs> Those are the three kind of zones where we'll feel a lot of physical distress in our bodies. We might have muscle tension overall. So there are physical signs of our distress. There are also psychological signs. So what's going on in your head when you're distressed? Any thoughts? What do you guys notice? Psychological signs of distress. Forgetfulness, yeah. Anxiety does make us forgetful, can make us confused or foggy. Um, do any of you, like me, I used to call it having a tape recorder in my head, and then I realized that's really old technology, but oh well, I still have that sense, you know, you push the button and that same tape plays over and over and over again. That's a psychological sign that I'm wound up. How about a depressed mood? So our moods can reflect the distress. So those are kind of things that we notice going on in ourselves, physical and psycho psychological signs of distress. And the third big area is behavioral. And this is where we notice this distress really erupting in our relationship. You might get into arguments with your mate or even say critical or contemptuous things. You know, you jerk, why don't you ever dot, dot, dot. Um, another common behavior is to distance. You know, the fire gets hot, so we move back. 
So if we're having distress with our mate, we might start shutting down. We choose not to talk. We exit the conversation physically or just emotionally, not responding, not maintaining eye contact. Sometimes this conflict and distance alternates. So you get into conflict, you have an argument, somebody leaves in a huff, somebody sleeps on the couch, someone, you know, um, leaves the room. So those are really common behavioral signs that we're distressed. A third thing that happens is that we form triangles. So let's say my mate and I are feeling tension between us. And I pick up the phone and call my mom and tell her all about what a jerky is. <laughs> um, I've just formed a triangle. Or if I send off an email or text or whatever you use to communicate. So now it's not just me who's upset with my mate. Maybe I've got somebody else on my side backing me up for my argument about how terrible this behavior is. So we do that, and we all do it. If you think about it very long, I suspect you'll notice, yeah, I've done that. Um, because it makes us feel better in the short run. It takes off the edge of the anxiety. We've kind of dumped it onto somebody else, so we need to think about that. And we've also taken all the energy out of the, the relationship um, and put it on something else. And so now we don't have the energy to actually address what's going on in the relationship. So I hope it's easy for you to see that all this emotional reactivity that we feel over the challenges in our relationships can really undermine our own well-being and it can definitely undermine our relationships. So okay, if I'm not supposed to focus on my mate's behavior, and I want to avoid all these symptoms that we're talking about, what the heck am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Well, the first thing, it's a really good idea when you get distressed over your mate's behavior, is take a deep breath. Just take a deep breath and start to refocus. And instead of having that laser vision for the speck in your partner's eye, shift your gaze from your mate to yourself. Next slide, please. It really helps to start considering responsibility. So I have responsibility for myself, for my thoughts, my choices, my actions, and especially for all that reactivity I feel when I'm focused on my mate and I see that dreaded behavior. Now I also have a responsibility to my mate. Notice that I'm not responsible for changing my mate, but I do have a responsibility to my mate. So I have a responsibility to be a resource. In that parable, Jesus says after we get the plank out of our own eye, it's okay to help get the speck out of the other person's eye, and maybe I can be a resource to my mate on a particular issue. I also have a responsibility to act with integrity, and that means acting according to my values, which might mean telling the truth about something that I'm upset about. I have a responsibility to be authentic, to be willing to put the tough issues on the table, rather than to talk with a third person or just do in my distress or whatever else I've been doing. And I have a responsibility to identify my part in this process. Because what goes on between me and my mate is a dance. 
and I have steps that I'm taking, and there's reciprocity. There's a back and forth pattern that's happening. So that's a whole lot of work. When you think about these areas of responsibility, that's really a whole lot of work that I can tend to on my own, regardless of whether my mate chooses to get interested in this process. So anybody willing to be honest? Any protest bubbling up out there thinking, wow, why should I have to work on myself if it's his problem? Well, first, I suggest, good, one person's laughing with me. <laughs> I suggest thinking of it being our problem, you know, because it really is. What goes on with our mate is very much also our challenge, or even better, our opportunity to grow as a couple. Um, so each of us has a part in the dance, but I can only control my part. So what's in it for me, really? to shift my focus from my partner back onto myself, back onto my responsibilities and the things I can work on. Next slide, please. Well, one is Jesus is pretty blunt in that parable. One of the harshest criticisms he ever used was to call somebody a hypocrite. And the clear message of that parable is to get the focus off the other person and onto ourselves. And so one good reason to get interested in ourselves is because we have a desire to be obedient to Christ. He said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And so that's a pretty good motive right there. But also very importantly, because we're all motivated by what's in it for me, very importantly, we'll begin to feel better. And we'll begin to behave in ways that are more consistent with our values. I believe ultimately we'll be a better partner if we get interested in ourselves. So if you think about it, just becoming aware, just start observing yourself and noticing what gets you reactive. And when you are upset and distressed, what do you notice? What symptoms do you notice? All of these physical and psychological and behavioral symptoms we're talking about. Just starting to observe that can be a big step and it can be useful because when we're more aware of it, we're in a better position to do something about it. And I wish we had time to get into all the ways we could tackle some of these issues. But suffice it for tonight to say that the Bible is full of spiritual disciplines that I believe God gave us to help us with this stuff. And so whether it's prayer or meditating on scripture, um, spending some time reviewing that parable that I shared, um, solitude, all those kinds of things can really help us um, to manage our distress. And as we get in the habit of managing our reactivity in productive ways, we can make better choices in our relationships. Finally, and maybe this is the, the piece that brought you here tonight, our efforts might just inspire our mates to get interested in their own functioning. Now there's no guarantee. A lot of times people put a lot of effort in and the other person never does get interested in changing. But I'll bet you that individual who made the effort feels better. And I hope um, that one thing you take away tonight is um, that if we stay focused on them changing and the fact that it's not fair for me to do the work, if he's not doing the work or she's not doing the work, we're, we might as well be banging our heads against the wall. Um, but there is some pretty serious, some pretty good evidence that if we get serious about working on our stuff, that that can have a positive impact on our partner and on our relationship. And so we really have a choice. We can spend a lot of energy focusing on our mate's bad behaviors or we can take that energy and use it to work on ourselves, and it just might improve our relationships.
Thanks a lot. Thank you, Molly. Thank you. Um, if you have a question, please uh, feel free to put that on the three by five card and raise it. I want to start with a question. And as I was listening to Wally present, I, I always sit up here and I'm so proud to be associated with these people. Each and every one of these persons I know loves Jesus, serves the Lord, and then to have this high a caliber presenters and Christians and people who've gone to great extent. I don't know if you know a psychotherapist. It's not just a master's degree that these people go through. They end up uh, fulfilling not only 500 plus hours of supervision during their master's program, so it's really more than a master's, truly. But then they spend about 3,000 hours being supervised uh, by a licensed therapist, which sometimes can take up to six years to make all of that happen. And so they come highly qualified, and it takes a great deal of discipline to reach the level that each and every one of these people have reached. So I, I always am always amazed. We, we, uh, this is offered for free. And where could you go to have five trained psychotherapists, not in your living room almost, but sort of, where you can ask questions and you're not going to be uh, charged at all tonight, other than uh, where we have the presence of God with us here as we're working together. That almost makes you want to do what Molly did, and that just take a deep breath and have a nice sigh. Oh, I'm not going to have to pay for anything tonight because sometimes we see psychotherapists, we don't have insurance, and then our anxiety goes through the roof because we know we're going to have to pay for it out of our pocket. But here we are, and so wonderful. I wanted to ask a question before we start receiving these, if we may, and that is I want to ask the, the, the panel, because of your presentation, thank you very much, Molly, for a, a splendid presentation. Very well done from my perspective. Why do we stay focused on our mate? I'd like to start with that question, and then I do have one question from the audience, please. Normally we have uh, lots of questions. I know you'll have them, so write it down and raise it in the air, and our hosts will pick that up, bring it to me. So could we start with this very first question? As I was listening to uh, Molly LaCroix present, I wanted to ask, why is it, why do we spend so much energy on our mate. This is what we tend to do, and we know that as psychotherapists, but help us to unravel that, kind of unlayer that. Why do we as humans do this activity of spending so much time and so much energy trying to change our mate? Can we start there? I think that would help us to have a real baseline of discussion. I was thinking after that introduction, um, the anxiety went really way up for me because I'm going to have to say something intelligent now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You've already done it, so your anxiety can go down now, Gary. You, okay. Just, just by responding. <laughs> yeah, I've already disqualified. <laughs> what I see an awful lot of in couples is projection. You know, what projection is, is basically attributing my own attributes, traits, behaviors, or even in, attended, you know, intended behaviors onto someone else and not really being clear about that you know talking about removing the log from our own eye before we can see the splinter in someone else's you know as you know that's a good place to start is to really begin to look at am i projecting how real is this you know what i'm really seeing in this other person it can certainly seem awfully real if it's a projection you know that emotional kind of projector that goes off, this motion picture that takes place in our head about who that other person might be. 
projection can include, you know, I project onto someone else that they're the ones that are envious. They're the ones that are jealous. They're the ones that are being, you know, so controlling. They're the ones that are, you know, lack integrity or whatever. Bringing it back to myself and really, you know, at looking at that and making sure that, you know, if I'm speaking the truth in love and making sure that it's not just a projection. So are you talking about insecurities? And maybe we can talk about this for just a moment. So I have an insecurity, and I'm talking with you, Gary, or maybe I'm talking to my mate, Robin, and she's speaking to me, and somehow what she says, my own insecurity comes out, and I try to cast that onto her, put that onto her? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Is that correct? Is that correct? You all, is, that, is that what is happening? That's one possibility. I the think first that's thing. probably happening for you. It okay, for me, okay. <laughs> it's already started. When Gary comes, we have this fight back and forth. If you haven't noticed, he took the first uh, stab, but I always have the last because I'm in charge of this as the moderator. But anyway, okay. So, so with that, Yolanda, you were saying now what? <laughs> I, the first thing I was thinking of is that uh, when I was in my second marriage to my husband, it's now been 33 years. One of the first things I thought of in thinking about this topic was that I really had a lot of blind spots since this was my second marriage. I didn't take the time to figure out why that first marriage didn't work. I had so many, placed so many expectations hmm. on this marriage working that um, I was very intense and intentional about it working. So the flaws seemed magnified. And I wondered in myself, had I made another bad decision? So there's, there were other issues. And so unfortunately, it magnified on my husband. And it really didn't have that much to do with it. The second thing I remembered is that when we got into discussions that were really heated, mm. I often had flashbacks of my parents mm. and the way they argued. So that was my first introduction to how I was replicating some of the family of origin issues in my second marriage. And that's where the rubber met the road, because I had to get serious. Was this my marriage, or was this my parents' marriage? Hmm. That's all I have to say about that. So you could almost see a parent in your husband. Like this question, this is one of the questions that the audience has asked. My mate does things that remind me of my parent, and I then react like I'm a child being told what to do by my parent. What can I do? That's the question. My mate does things that remind me. It sounds very similar to your articulations there. My mate does things that remind me of my parent, and I then react like I'm a child being told what to do by my parent. What can I do? That would be a projection, too. Okay, thank you. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I wanna, I'll, <laughs> I'll take a whack at this one. Um, to answer Don's question first, I'll, I'll, I'll address that, then I'll address the question that was posed. Um, is by focusing on my mate, I don't have to focus on me. So if I focus on me, that means I have to open up and expose a part of myself to my mate, which means I have to admit that I have some kind of flaw or that I'm somehow defective or deficient. And I'm going to be resistant to that, naturally resistant, because if my mate sees that I'm somehow weak or defective, they may abandon me, they may reject me, they may leave me. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I don't want that to happen. So what I'm gonna try to do is present a best possible self to my mate. It, it may not be authentic, but I'm gonna try to present the best possible self to my mate. And as a result, my mate can certainly see right through it and say, you know, that, that's not you, that's not what you're about. 
you're something different. And to, for me to admit that they're right, of course, is going to be very difficult because that means that I'm, I'm, I'm human, I'm flawed. There's, there's something that I need to change and work on in myself. Now, in response to this question, if, I, if I'm focusing on me and I'm trying to understand myself at a deeper level and I can see that my partner is somehow making me feel like I'm a child and my partner is actually behaving like a parent, then what I have to strive to do is understand what are the things that I gained or gleaned or, or learned as I grew up with my family? How did my parents affect me and form the beliefs and values and truths that I have in my mind? Where did, where did I learn to do the things that I learned or to believe the things that I learned from my parents? Because I'm forming feelings and I'm forming judgments, even self-judgments. I'm even judgment, judging my own self. And I'm, uh, I'm behaving in response to something that's coming from what I believe to be coming from my, my, uh, my partner. So rather than focus on, you're making me feel a certain way, it'd be more important for me to focus on, what is it about me that's causing me to feel this certain way as a result of their behavior? Okay, that's the second uh, PowerPoint. If you look at page two of your PowerPoint, Molly, you refer to what Ryan is speaking of right now. Shift the focus, responsibility for myself, for so my thoughts, my choices, my actions, reactivity. I have responsibility to, we call it, stay present, stay present with my feelings. And the most difficult thing to do, am I correct, panel? The most difficult thing to do is to be able to be vulnerable to my mate. However, if we look at a biblical uh, view of this, that's exactly what God does with us. He makes himself vulnerable through Christ Jesus. And that's one of the most difficult things to do. And when I talk about vulnerability, that he, he loves us with agape love and we can choose not to love him back. How vulnerable is that? That's abandonment that you refer to. That's, that's us abandoning God. He's all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing. He, he's fully sufficient, but he chooses that relationship is incredibly important at the deepest levels to himself and to us, of course. So let's stay for just a moment on this uh, vulnerable place. That what's very difficult, and I see this with, with my wonderful clients and people here at the church as we work, that to be make myself vulnerable, this very second slide that you, it's really your first one after you describe, you know, some of the symptoms, the signs of distress, how to make ourselves vulnerable. We're seeing how important it is, but how do we do this? This is where get, couples get so stuck, and they want to do just like Adam did with Eve, and that is the woman made me do it. I want to cast it, we'll say this is projection again, Gary, project it onto someone else, right? and not take responsibility. Talk to us about it. How do we practically change this? I don't want to be vulnerable. So it's counterintuitive to do what you're saying here. What would you tell me in a session? How do we start there to remain vulnerable when you said it so well, Ryan, it's difficult to be there? The first thing that I want to say about being vulnerable is that it's important for that person to feel that they can be vulnerable and feel like that person will not attack them hmm. or take advantage of them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's not always going to happen. 
So being vulnerable takes some wisdom to know that you can be vulnerable and what you're going to be vulnerable about. Sometimes um, a partner can feel like they're being honest and when they're telling you how they honestly feel, they can actually hurt your feelings even more by being so brutally honest. Mm. And that can start off a other, another whole change. So I think maybe defining what vulnerable means might help. Okay. Um, the, what I was thinking as Don was talking is that sometimes um, we jump to interaction with our partner about an issue, I think, maybe too quickly. Because um, you can tell we're kind of in sync here tonight on our focus about getting interested in ourselves. And so in terms of vulnerability, perhaps the first step might be getting vulnerable before the Lord. And really um, getting serious. And when I say solitude as a spiritual discipline, really getting away for some quiet time to really listen to what the Lord is telling me. And if I say, you know, search me, O God, and know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts, um, and really seek to, to have him guide me into that. Um, you know, trusting, maybe using some scripture to help me stay focused that I can trust him. You know, God is really good about only showing us how much we can tolerate at a time. Unlike our maid who might be interested in rolling out a whole long list of things, <laughs> kind of what Yolanda was indicating that, you know, sometimes the vulnerability needs to start um, in private with the Lord or, you know, with a therapist or with a trusted, um, you know, the Bible, you know, encourages us to seek wise counsel, a trusted resource, maybe as a first step. So that'd be a starting step is really we could do that with the Lord. That would be the very first starting place. Uh, actually, there then are theorists who came in the 20th century, now the 21st, who would say that one of the very first steps of being healthy as a little child is learning how to trust, not distrust. So as we come to the Lord as, a, as his child, we learn to trust that we can then contextualize that, bring that to our marriage. Okay. One of the challenges of uh, when you trust see, with God, the love is unconditional. So we can look forward to God loving us back. When we are vulnerable to our partner, we're not sure if we're necessarily going to receive unconditional love. That's our hope, but there is a certain risk in our hearts that we might get some kind of pushback, rejection, uh, argument, disagreement, there may, be, there may be a result that occurs. And so I want to address the question you asked, Don, and that was, uh, what is it about vulnerability? What is vulnerability? And, and I look at vulnerability as the essence of intimacy. Now, I'm introducing a new term. And that term intimacy, I'm not talking from a sexual perspective. I'm talking about intimacy from the standpoint of being close to another human being. So if you look at the definition of intimacy, it's a recurrent process. Happens over and over again. So it's not just a one-time deal. It's a recurrent process of open self-confrontation of core aspects of the self in the presence of your partner. So when you're doing, when you're really being authentic with your partner, you are being vulnerable. And by being vulnerable, you create intimacy, you create closeness. Think about in your own experiences when you became closest to your partner. It was when they were at their weakest, when they actually exposed and showed you where they were weak, that's when you were drawn most closely to them. Mm -hmm. and, and so that 
to me, vulnerability is the essence of intimacy and, and the essence of closeness. And trust. I think trust could be added to that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. vulnerability is, in essence, uh, trust. It's trusting, isn't it? Yes. Other thoughts? jump in if you had something to say, but I, I, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's an important point because we've raised the issue of trust, and trust is, as Don indicated, the first developmental milestone when we're very young children. Um, we learn whether we can trust, and sometimes there are, there are things in our environment when we're young children, particularly that happen with our primary caregivers, whether that's our parent or someone else, that, that can impact that developmental milestone. And so sometimes starting, you might not be at a point where you can start with trust, even trusting God. And so sometimes if there's sufficient trauma in those early relationships, that's sometimes the first work that comes before the ability to trust, the ability to be vulnerable, and the ability to enjoy real intimacy with the Lord or or any other person. Yes, this is the toxicity of the church today. If I can add to this, and we'll get right to you, Gary. I, I can't speak for the panel members, but this is the thing I see as a pastoral counselor, a psychotherapist, is that Christendom today, the most toxic place in the church today is, I believe it in my head that God's grace is available. In my heart, I can't trust it. So I can talk about it, I can listen to it, even feel a little bit of it. But for it to be downloaded into my heart is a different thing. And I really like what you just said, and that is maybe the starting place, perhaps. I don't think you said maybe, but the starting place could be getting at the trauma that has locked you down so that you're not going to be vulnerable to anyone, not even yourself. Right? Remember when Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That was the big deal, even though the great command uh, of that, as well as the, the earlier writings, the Shema passage out of Deuteronomy 6, again, that tells that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. If we cannot receive or be vulnerable, excuse me, if we cannot be vulnerable and trust, we cannot receive. So this is a very critical discussion, um, and each and every one of you has helped. I know, Dr. Fallon, were you going to add something, and then I know, Gary, you were ready. I can't help but when we're talking about vulnerability, of thinking of the, the, what's required is, is humility. Hmm. That word just keeps coming to my mind, is mm -hmm. that I've got to be able to, be, to humble myself before God, before my mate, in a safe, hopefully safe relationship, and then the aspect of, as Ryan was saying, you know, the intimacy. And I heard a definition of intimacy was into me see. Mm. Allow the other person mm -hmm. to see into you. Allow God to see mm. into you. Mm. And that's real vulnerability. And that takes humility. And what comes to my mind is what Molly shared earlier, is that uh, how many of us have been with people and we've been... a wanting to say something to them and uh, about ourselves, reveal something about ourselves, and they take the initiative and say something and make themselves vulnerable to us, and then that prompts us to want to open up to them about yes. something that we have been carrying, maybe that we wanted to share, that we maybe were afraid to or unwilling to, but when they took that initiative, it then said, oh, wow, I can share now, yes. too. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. That's why we're drawn to him. He had his heart open 
laid open for us. Talk to us for just a moment as a panel about this idea of being humble. I, I think we, we talk too much about it, perhaps we don't talk enough about it, but we talk so much about it or around it, and we don't really understand from a biblical perspective, what does it mean to be humble? You're talking about this humility, to be able to receive God's grace, I, I know I added that piece, but to be able to be vulnerable and to enter into this intimacy that you've all talked about, what does it mean to be humble? I think of it as healthy shame. You know, that, healthy shame. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That it's not shameless or shameful. The healthy shame is that position where I know that I'm not perfect. I know that I'm going to make mistakes. I know that I'm going to mess up. That I know that I have these character defects and it's okay. That I'm forgiven and I'm accepted for that anyways. And I was going to go back to, tr you know, to trust and then how I see the importance of trust. Trust is what gives us the ability to bond. And it's in that bonding, those secure attachments, that we're able to give and receive love. That is majorly important. Because the first spiritual you know, part of development is the capacity to love. And so, you know, trust is like the big foundation that everything, both spiritual development as well as the psychological development, sits upon. So trust is always going to be attacked by Satan. I mean, that is just a given. He wants to take that out. Mm -hmm. And so when we're in a position where we're not able and not willing to humbly come to a place of really trusting our, you know, our fellows, our spouse, or whoever it might be, really Satan is winning in that, in that situation. Everything on the psychological level sitting on top of that foundation of trust. You have, you know, autonomy. You have competency, ingenuity, you know, identity, intimacy, or, uh, yeah, intimacy and then longevity. I mean, pretty much in a nutshell, that is the, you know, psychological development. I think of the spiritual development as love, joy, peace, patience, well, you know, you know, the, you know, right up to self, you know, self-control. So there is no question that Satan wants to target the foundation. Because once that target is, you know, it's like all the rest of it just becomes like a, you know, it's wobbling on this weak foundation. And, you know, when you don't have the trust, it feels like, you know, just the house is just tip, you know, kind of tippling around, you know, all the time. You're taken out from your ability to love. Then, you know, without autonomy, you know, that dissipates. What goes right behind that? Joy. It's really difficult to maintain joy when, when you don't have any of the rest of that working. When joy, now, here's the really important point here. Joy is the strength of our Lord. Uh, you know, you know, the joy of the Lord is, the, you know, is our strength. So once joy really goes, you are wide open. You cannot hold that sword. You can't keep the shield up. You will lose the breastplate, and you are going to be exposed, just about as exposed as you can possibly be. And so, you know, practicing, working at, you know, how can I develop a real sense of trust is a major, major issue. Um, because intimacy is not going to, it's just not going to occur without a level of trust. Okay. So, and we're going to move to the next question, but I wanted to just stay here for just one more moment, if I may. So we've talked about being vulnerable. We're talking about trust. You know, trust in the Lord and lean not under your own understanding, but acknowledge Him. We know, we talk, we're talking about humbling ourselves. We're talking here about uh, if we have a traumatization that keeps us from trusting. So I'm a Christian, I'm listening tonight, and I'm saying, or maybe not a Christian, but I'm saying, 
wow, I want to become a Christian. This sounds great. Is that as I'm, as a Christian, trying to be able to not project, going back to our concept, and wanting to be vulnerable, wanting to trust, wanting to be humble, how do I spiritually humble myself before the Lord? Maybe I have a trauma that's keeping me from doing that. I, I have to just be plain, flat, honest with God. This you know? is that authenticity yeah, that you're absolutely. referring to? Absolutely. Just, this is where I, I, you know, the other day I was doing, you know, just that in my prayer. It was like, you know what, God? This is just the way it is. I, I can't change it, so you're just going to have to work with me on it. You know? Okay, so you were and asking for help. You were right. being honest. I think it's a process. I know when I first uh, came to the Lord, I was in my 30s, and I think it was a process of several years because mm-hmm. I had never known any. And raised in a, a traditional background, I had never really had a personal relationship with God. And I remember in the early stages, we had Bible studies. We had all kinds of things to help us understand what it meant to be a new Christian. And I remember one day I was praying and I was asking the Lord about the areas of my life. And I distinctly felt the Lord saying, you're trying to bargain with me. And I don't bargain. I want all of you, not just a part of you. I want to be someone you've never known. And when I asked the Lord, who is that? He said, I want to be the Lord of your life. And I think that whole process of understanding, I think it's overwhelming to know or even have someone teach you how to trust God, to know him. And, and I, I think that every day, every time we give the Lord the opportunity to speak to us, we listen and we obey is another dimension of being able to trust. He mm-hmm. means what he says. Mm-hmm. So we can trust him even if we can't trust anything else. Beautiful process. Then you're referring to a process. I think about confession. Uh, you know, First mm-hmm. John one nine says that if we confess our sins, meaning if we can go before God and honestly say, "Hey, God, I messed up," mm-hmm. agreeing with God is what the word confession means. There, mm-hmm. that we can find that intimacy with God because I was with a guy today and he asked me, well, why do I have to confess my sins if all of my things past, present, and future are already taken care of? And the way, best way I explain it to him, it keeps, it keeps harmony in the relationship. The relationship is sealed forever in Christ. Your sonship, your being a child of God never changes. But in the same way as a parent-child relationship, when there's a break in the, rela- in the harmony, excuse me, when we disobey, when a child comes to us and says, hey, dad, hey, mom, I really blew it. Will you forgive me? Mm-hmm. I did wrong, mm-hmm. man, and I'm really sorry for that. Mm-hmm. What does that do? Wow. You know, it just restores the harmony in the relationship. Mm-hmm. But they'll always be your child. You'll never change that. Mm-hmm. But it takes humility and vulnerability to be willing to confess. You know, the old practice of the Roman Catholic Church of going to confession. Yes. You know, it's good for the soul. Yes. And, and yet that takes vulnerability, that takes humility. And that's an, a way maybe we can consider how do we get that and achieve that biblically mm-hmm. in terms of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Question that you might ask yourself when you're in prayer is, and you're trying or striving to humbly present yourself before God is when you're thinking about a situation, and that's often what we do in prayer is we process and think about situations that we may have going on in our life. The question you could ask is, what am I willing to take ownership for in this situation? How am I contributing to this problem? Hmm. That is when you're actually 
being humble before God because mm-hmm. you're, t- <coughs> excuse me, you're admitting that you too might be contributing to the, situ- to the situation and asking God to give you the strength or the resources necessary to be able to present that, that authentic part of yourself, that ownership to your partner. And when your partner senses that you're actually taking responsibility for your part, it's going to open up the door for them to do the same with you, and that's what's going to increase closeness. That's where the vulnerability piece comes in. Just one more word on confession. <laughs> um, you know, it, it strikes me that with a lot of these things, if it's, if it's not a habit that we have formed, it's like any new habit, it really starts with obedience. It's a command that's given to us. Um, but I think sometimes confession... Um, we don't. We're not as eager about that particular spiritual discipline as maybe we are about prayer or Bible study or something else, service uh, or worship. Um, but God gives us these things because He loves us, and and so um, if we can begin just out of obedience, not because we feel like it, um, but we can even just ask God to give us a desire to confess, and and maybe use a journal or something like that to just. Write down what comes to mind if you go before him with that um, desire. That's, that's a part of the humility, too. <laughs> yeah, the beauty, when we ask God for his empathy, he gives it without withholding it. And an interesting thing about the vulnerability and the humility, and I think, Ryan, you were suggesting this as well, is healthy children have a lot of empathy. That doesn't mean that they take care of other people. They have empathy for themselves, for him or herself. Okay, I made a mistake, but I think I'll recover. Healthy children recover quickly and say, I made a mistake or I didn't do this well, but I will, I'll do better. I'll try next time. Not that I need to try harder necessarily. And so when you think about humility, trust, and all of these factors that we're talking about, it, when we come close to God, he gives us his humility. Humility means that I have empathy for self. You following that? Empathy for self means that I can have empathy for my mate. So those that are able not to project onto their mate and to find all that's wrong with them have a lot of empathy for self and care and concern. Let's shift gears if I can. I want to shift gears to this next question and hope it's okay. That, this was a, beautiful, from my perspective, a beautiful dialogue on how to gain health from a spiritual Biblically spiritual and psychological perspective. Um, so this next question, um, now I get, I get excited with these deep talks, and you may be asleep, I don't know, but anyone out there? No, I think you're still awake. Okay, is what happens when you try to change, here it is, Hold it, put your seatbelt on, what happens when you try to change, but your mate won't let you? Good question, this is a very good question. All right. Ooh, good question. Okay, what happens when you try to change, but your mate won't let you? This is a common experience, by the way. You're... It's, it's really useful to keep in mind that the first time we do something different, because most of the times, there's the, you know, we've been in this relationship for a while, there are patterns, and there are predict, you know, we become kind of predictable to our mate, and so then you try to change. So this is something new. It's very predictable that the reaction is change back you will get a change back reaction. Mm -hmm. So if you can expect that, then your work is just to stand firm. So it's really useful before you're gonna try out a change in your relationship to give it some thought and to decide, am I really serious about this? 
What are my values telling me? What are my principles telling me? Okay, this is where I need to take this stand. And when you've done that thinking and you get the change back reaction, you might not feel good, but you can remind yourself, take a deep breath, remind yourself, okay, I thought this through. This is where I need to stand on this. And it, it may take a while, but basically expect the change back and then stand firm. What's in human nature to do the change back? Why do we do that? We feel threatened. Feel threatened? Sometimes. <laughs> and it's familiar. Going oh, back familiar to the old point. roles is always the most familiar thing. We have a tendency to gravitate back to what's familiar. Why? Why do we gravitate back? To, I know that it's, it's, it's comfortable. Comfortable. It's, Okay. It's familiar. Familiar. We know how to operate from that position. And usually from that position, what our old role was, we know how to defend ourselves. Ah, okay. Because if I give up the old role, then I'm giving up a basically, you know, some level of, you know, how I've learned to defend and guard myself. So I have to be, that, that keeps me in a defensive place. I won't right. be vulnerable. We're back right. to the very beginning of this discussion. Yeah, giving up the, giving up, when you come from a dysfunctional home, <laughs> Everyone is given a role. <laughs> Everyone's assigned a role that you get to play. And I won't go through all of them, but some, you know, some get to be the hero, some gets to be the clown, some gets to be the mascot, some gets to be the gatekeeper, whatever, you know, the codependent. There's all kinds of roles that, get, you know, that you can get assigned to. And then when you're in relationship, and this is true not only just in a marriage, but it can be you know, in you know, societal as well. I begin to change that role that's a change. So other people then have to adjust to the change that I'm making. Um, my role in my family was I was the clown. I was definitely the mascot. I knew how to tell the jokes, you know, <laughs> you know, get everyone laughing. And while they were laughing, I could move away. Hmm. I grew up, you know, participating in that role my whole life. I had to change that because, you know, it was creating massive amounts of insecurity and and secondly, it just wasn't honest. And I remember how difficult that was. It was when I was working in the hospitals about 25 years ago. You know, the therapist would be upset with the nurses. The nurses would be upset with the, you know, with the uh, psychiatrist. You know, the social workers, well, they were just upset with everyone. And, <laughs> and my job in the staff meeting was always to bring the humor in, to cut through the tension. I'd have to say something funny, and we'd cut through the, you know. And so everyone would laugh, and, you know, it cut through all that. And I remember, you know, when I was really looking at that in my own life, <laughs> sitting in a staff meeting one time, and I mean, I'm, you know, we had a couple, you know, borderlines on the unit, and so everything was split, and, you know, we had a lot of stuff going on. And I remember sitting there thinking, I'm keeping my mouth shut. I could tell them about the blind skunk that fell in love with, well, you know, and, <laughs> and all these different, you know, thoughts. But I just, I'm not going to do this. And it was the hardest thing in the world for me to do. I had to literally sit on my hands to keep from telling a joke. And I could tell everyone in the room was waiting on me to mm -hmm. tell the joke. And so, yeah, it's, it's powerful, you know, and in, in, in any family role that you're in, family is a powerful force to keep you in that role mm -hmm. because they don't want to have to change and adjust to your change. I want to address this question because I feel that it's important to say that no one can stop you from changing. In other words, no one can stop you from being and living free without an example of exactly what the change is, that's difficult to say. But if someone, if, if your partner feels threatened because you are making a change, maybe the change is too abrupt. Mm. Maybe the change is, it needs to be in stages. 
use this opportunity if you feel uh, blocked to make the change for conversation. Make yourself vulnerable. Maybe explain why you're making the change, what your intention is, and focus on you, not on the other person. Be very careful when you're making an excuse or using someone else to stop from making the changes that you feel God is saying, it's time for change. It's time to put on a part of the new man or the new woman. So give your partner the respect for needing to understand you better. Possibly don't block off any possibility for communication. Just be wise in the changes and the moves you want to make and seek the Lord. Maybe uh, the change uh, needs a little bit of adjustment, but use that as an opportunity to be vulnerable and open the dialogue and gain the intimacy that Ryan was talking about. Mm -hmm. That's your key. Normally, uh, during this time, we have uh, questions from the audience. If you have a question, just raise your hand and we can bring a microphone to you in our discussion. It can oftentimes change. I have a next question, but if you do have a comment or a question from the audience, please just raise your hand. We've got people waiting with a microphone. Um, the next question, as we're moving along, is this might help us to give some examples. It says, it's saying, please talk about hope for all. Give us some success stories, successes you've watched in couples who are not doing this, changing the negative behavior in my mate. They're not trying to change the other person. Of course, we're not going to give any name or any details that we could ever attach a person to the story, but we know it's a true story. Do you have some that you could share with us? And again, by the way, if you have a comment from the audience, if we have a few more minutes here this evening, but please raise your hand without a three by five card. I, I have two questions left and we're doing well, but if you would like to comment, feel free to raise your hand. You have some success stories about this, ways in which. The question was where there have been changes in the relationship? Yes, so that you weren't, uh, you weren't trying to change the negative behavior in your mate and how those couples uh, maneuvered that, worked around that, and functioned more healthily. One of the examples that I had last year is a couple who experienced a, a loss. Their, their child died of cancer within 14 months. It was very unusual. And many times when couples have a shared loss, you would think that would bind them together in that unity. But frequently, because they may not grieve the same way, the conflict comes up and the misunderstandings come up. So part of the uh, work in therapy that they did is accepting that they have differences, accepting they have uh, the right to be able to grieve differently, and appreciating it. It wasn't always acknowledging the differences, but it was respecting the differences. So, and they also were very close to the Lord. They prayed about everything, and they, one of their greatest conflicts was thinking this shouldn't happen to us. So accepting that this was happening, admitting they were hurting, and admitting that they loved each other helped mm. them work through this very difficult um, Lost, and they actually came out much better with much more respect for each other and a, a deeper love for one another, which helped them with their children. Mm. So that was a success. Wonderful. Anyone else have a, a real story of, of success with this? Well, the, the one story that comes to my mind is a couple that uh, they had a miscarriage, and um, the wife 
it, it was an onset, sudden onset. She ran to the restroom and, uh, and or at least to the bathroom in the house, and uh, you know, the the miscarriage occurred. And mm -hmm. she actually captured the um, the fetus in a butter dish. So she's basically sitting in the bathroom in this pool of blood, mm -hmm. with holding this what was formerly their child, and her husband is in this mode of got to get you to the hospital, get the car, you know, do this, do that. He's handling all the logistics. And she's sitting there grieving the fact that she lost this child. And what was the therapeutic, the process that needed to come to happen in therapy is, well, the, the ultimate result of the whole situation is she just lost total confidence in her husband. She basically thought he completely missed, missed the boat and was, uh, you know, a failure. He just failed. So what ultimately had to happen in the therapy process is her husband needed to understand the, the pain that she was in at that moment and carried with her to that day. And then, and so that was a real exposure. That was opening up and sharing of herself. And what he had to share with her is the fear that he was experiencing mm. because she was bleeding profusely. Mm. And he really thought that she was gonna pass out and die. So he wasn't sure what to do. So he was just, you know, thinking, you know, emergency as, as best as he could. And in the process of him sharing with her his fear and her sharing with him her grief, mm. that's when there was a real change in, in the relationship and a real growth in closeness. You talked about that earlier about awareness in, in your presentation. When we have an awareness, perhaps we have a, a better way to manage. I think that's what you're relaying to us through that story. And that's exactly the example that came to my mind was a situation with a couple um, where the woman was very anxious about one of her husband's behaviors. How apropos for tonight. <laughs> and he was doing his work and he was attending to um, his, his behavior and, and taking really good steps um, and doing some work, but she was really anxious about it. And so she, was, she um, was managing that anxiety by kind of invading his space and um, essentially asking him for a lot of reports about the work he was doing. And, and you know, as she became aware of that and recognized that, that, that her piece of the work was to find a different way to manage her reactivity, um, she was a very bright young woman and, and, and very motivated, and she figured that out and got serious about um, doing some different things with that reactivity. And in that case, it was a really relatively quick change, and it made a huge difference for both of them in pretty short order. Mm -hmm. So again, working on your own reactivity. It's sort of like this next question that's asking, how many times do you discuss an issue with your mate that goes unchanged before we go for help. <laughs> Let me rephrase. We're the, all really yeah. objective the, about the, that. Yeah. <laughs> the, time to, the time to see a therapist is when you're stuck. I mean, when you get to that place where it's like, we're really stuck in this, mm -hmm. that's the time to make the phone call. I was going to dovetail on Absolutely. the last Absolutely, please, please. Yeah. I, I always love watching couples come in because, you know, really, what I often see is they're just trying to control each other. 
you know, trying to control their opinion, trying to control their, <laughs> you know, happens. conversation, <laughs> trying to control their behavior, all this sort of thing. Because the, you know, the misgiven belief is, is control equals, you know, security, <laughs> which is completely crazy, you know? Obsession equals caring, you know? I think about him day and night all the time, 24 hours, I say, you know, I love him so much. No, that's called obsession. <laughs> you, know? You, know, you know, beginning to work with that, you know? It's like, no, I think that's, you know, that's called control, you know? And just, you know, you're watching people, you know, coming to that place, it's like, yeah, that is pretty crazy, you know, spending all this time trying to control someone else. And, as, you know, and, we, and I know we've all seen that, where we worked with couples, helping them let go of the control and, you know, accept, you know. I remember the big book where, I remember the first time, page 449. You know, <laughs> acceptance, acceptance, acceptance is the key to a peaceful life, you know. And, you know I need to find a way to just accept this. Because what marriage is, it's, it's the ultimate growing machine. It really is. God brings people together to heal them, <laughs> you know, through all that conflict. You know, and so it's, what is that healing? A lot of that healing is giving up my position as the manager of the universe. You know, I'm not in charge. And mm -hmm. really kind of having to come to terms with that, you know, put that resignation, I'm not qualified. So that's my thought. You had mentioned when is it time to get some help? Oh, time to get some help. Yeah, yeah, go for help is how they said it. Yes. How many times do you discuss an times? issue with your mate that goes unchanged before we go for help? I follow, uh, try to counsel with a, a rule of thumb that says, you know, when you, uh, when you ask your mate something, you, you ask them once, remind them twice, the third time you're nagging. Mm. And what do you do then? Well, that's when you turn, instead of nagging, because the harder you keep pushing and pursuing, guess what? Your mate's going to say, thank you so much for continuing to nag me. I'm just so ready to do whatever you want me to do right now. <laughs> what do they do? They go the opposite direction. Mm. That's the time when you get on your knees, you go before the Lord, you pray, and mm. you bring that to the Lord, and, and you pray, because God is able. <laughs> and you may suggest, like Gary said, hey, can we go see somebody? And if they say no, you keep praying, and maybe then approach it again. Mm after a period. Well, and Gary just said what, what I'm sitting here thinking, which is to just go yourself. There you because, go. Because, you know, my point in my part of the presentation was to get you interested in yourself. Mm -hmm. And it can be a real gift. It, you know, obviously, it can be a real luxury also to go get some counseling, but it can also be a gift to yourself and to get some help in looking at yourself. And as we've talked about, looking at the influence of the family you grew up in and and really just spending that energy that's been all focused on your mate, on yourself, um, as a first step. And sometimes when, you know, you keep going at someone, all you're really doing is you're giving them something to resist. When you stop, you know, doing that, all of a sudden they don't have anything to resist any longer. Whoa, that's confusing. I, I like the saying, I often tell people this, you want a better marriage, be a better spouse. Be a better spouse. Mm -hmm. Work on yourself. Do the work of taking that log out of your eye, getting before the Lord. You want a better marriage? It's not about your mate changing. It's about you. And yet we get so obsessed with trying to fix the other person because they're the problem when really the problem is right here. We have just a few minutes left, but I want to go back to you real quickly, this idea of control. Uh, don't we grow up being taught to control things? I control my temper. I control my impulses. I control my grades. i got to study harder. Uh, I can control not uh, hitting my sister. 
um, that sort of thing. Aren't we taught to control? And now you as psychotherapists are telling us not to control. Tell us a little bit about more about that. What do There's you mean? a difference between self-control and controlling other people. Hmm. And the rub is you need to discern the difference and the pain that you cause someone else. Um, controlling children, sometimes I know one of the complaints that wives have is, I think I have another child. I don't have a husband. And I think that sometimes we really need to step back mm-hmm. and to respect that he's not a child or she's not a child. I think um, sometimes it's difficult to feel like uh, if you have a problem, you want to wipe that problem out and just control it, fix it. Mm. A lot of times, some of the couples that come in are not aware that they have personality traits. They don't have personality. um, They're not uh, access to. Oh, disorders. But they they have personality traits that of you know, that get in there and they're a little ingrained or they're, they're taught from their family of origin and that makes it a little bit difficult to peel off. Mm-hmm. But self-control, I believe, is what we're talking and, about. And you can, you know, there's a difference between being controlling and, you know, being self-controlled. Mm-hmm. But the thought is, for most people, is if I let go of control, I'm going to be out of control. And the reality is, I can let go of control and still not be out of control. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a lot of you know, you know, the emotional stuff. You know, I have so much grief and so much anger. I got to keep that down and under control because the fear is, if I let it come up, I'm going to be so out of control that you know, I'm mm-hmm. you know, going to go crazy. Mm-hmm. That's a lie. That's a lie straight from hell. That really is. You know, the best way to get rid of a feeling is simply to feel it. Mm-hmm. You know. And obviously, you know, we got a lot of resistance to that. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, would you join me? We need to wind down for this evening. Would you join me in thanking our panel for this wonderful evening together? You know, it seems like uh, each time we do one of these panels, I, I walk away and I go, wow, that was the best. And I'm sitting here, my experience of listening to each of you, there was a depth of understanding, in-depth understanding from how we can be aware of ourselves uh, and not project. Gary, you helped us to stay there. And looking at uh, the humility of Christ himself. It's not something we create, of course. We can learn processes, but it's what we're becoming, of course, in Christ. But I want to thank them, each of them. And by the way, when we bring them, one of the opportunities is for you to meet them. You may be here this evening or even have a friend or a neighbor who would say, wow, listening to this particular therapist tonight, I believe that I could feel safe and comfortable working with this person. Um, Not one of these persons is paid to be here. Um, And I appreciate the opportunity that they come. Oh, Gary, you didn't realize that? Okay. (laughs) After all these years, three years now, you still okay? (laughs) Tell one more joke and you'll be okay. But is... uh, is just want to mention that they will be in the back, and you can see we have a, a lot of fun. Uh, you, you, you probably uh, uh, wish you could work alongside of us because these are great people to serve along. I, I, I learn every time I'm around them and through some of the supervision and some of the groups and the consults that we have, and 
and just sometimes that we spend in staff meeting time. So would like to invite you to meet them in the back. There are, they have their cards back there. And also would like to mention that our, our next My Therapist Says is, you have to put your seatbelt on this one, Increasing Healthy Sex in Marriage. This goes in line with a, a group of people. We have about 126 people in our two classes. One class is working on, actually we have about 150. We were about 126 last week. And we worked on a healthy sexual relationship in marriage. And so this really fits with what some of the people in Skyline, right here at Skyline, are looking at during the year. But if you have a friend, neighbor, someone who uh, would like to hear more about this, you'll hear a very candid uh, view. And I believe we don't have the PowerPoint for that, I guess. And that is, the next one is increasing uh, healthy sex. I think John's going to change it. Increasing healthy sex in marriage. And there's our panel. Laura Duggar will be our presenter. She actually specializes in sexuality, uh, working with that from a psychotherapy standpoint. Lucretia Lee, Yolanda will be back with us, and Don Levine. Uh, these are the people who will be with us uh, next week. Let's have a, next month rather, let's have a word of prayer, and then we will be dismissed. Father, thank you so much for your presence here tonight. I'm always amazed when we focus in on you, truths come forth that perhaps we've never even thought of, or when maybe we heard them for the first time. If so, we can thank you, because truths arise from the heart of God. You love us so deeply, we will never quite understand it, although we can fully experience it. That's the beauty of God's agape love. Uh, bless these psychotherapists and their families and, and their, their children, and bless each and every person that was present here tonight, those who may be listening uh, through our website, and that we pray that we may have healthy relationship, and especially the marriages that would be healthy. Father, we thank you that that really is the foundation of this nation, and that's the executive subsystem within a home. That is the marriage in the home. Bless each and every one, and we give you praise for your presence with us this night. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.